Our text today is 1 Peter 1, 13-16. It's on your scripture sheet. Let me read it. Peter's writing, and he says in verse 13 of 1 Peter 1, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you brought us today under the authority of this particular passage of Scripture, which is divine revelation. Teach us your truth today. Teach us your will. Work within us your sanctifying grace. Help us to grow to have more of the mindset and character of our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. It's often been said that when we come across the word therefore in the scriptures, we need to ask ourselves, what is it therefore? Well, in other words, it's saying that because of what was previously written, something else is going to follow from that. It's like cause and effect. So we need to either do something or think about something or take heed to what was said and see what the result of that is. Well, all scripture, as I believe you know, is inspired by God. It has the approval and authority of God himself, and therefore it's not optional for us we must take it with the utmost seriousness because it has the same authority as if the Lord Jesus himself was standing in front of us and teaching us his word. So, Peter, when he says in verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action. What's he referring to? Well, Specifically, he's referring to what he's been talking about in the first 12 verses. For example, because of, great, of God's great mercy, we need to do something. Because of our new birth, based on Christ's resurrection from the dead, we need to do something. Because our salvation is guarded in heaven by God's very power, we need to do something. We need to respond to that. Because our faith is of necessity often tested to prove its genuineness, we need to respond to that. We need to recognize that the prophecies of the Old Testament, as it said here, were written for our benefit for the church. And so we need to take them most seriously and very precious and also recognize that when the gospel came to us, when we heard it, it came not just as the 
mere words of human beings, but it was the very word of God brought to us by the power of the Spirit as it was faithful to the Scriptures. Well, all that he said to us is just fantastic. I mean, these great truths about our salvation, the mercy of God, the keeping power of God, are enough to, to have us get up out of our seats and begin to shout and dance around the room and want to shout it from the rooftops. This is good news. This is great news. This is the best news that ever hit the human race. Well, but Peter wants to give us some specific instructions in light of all these great gospel truths. Typical of apostolic letters, such as Paul's, doctrine is given first and then practical application of those doctrines. So the, uh, the practical applications will explain some specific ways that these great truths uh, should work out in our lives in the light of what Jesus has done and continues to do for us. First, there's the doctrinal, then there's the practical. Good theology is very important. It leads to right thinking and good practice in our life. Doctrine is delightful because it delivers us from deviant thinking and behavior. Doctrine is delightful because it strengthens us in the good and sets us free from the bad. So, let's feed on Christian doctrine so that we might reflect more and more the image of Christ that he's working in us. Well, Peter, of course, has been dead for many centuries, but what he wrote here is just as needful, just as relevant uh, as it ever has been in the history of the church. So let's think about this, what he said. First of all, three great truths I want to bring out today. The first is this. We are exhorted to live our lives in view of the fact that Christ is returning. Verse 13 says, Therefore, because of what's happened in history, prepare your minds for action. Being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we're supposed to live our lives in the present with a uh, a view to what's going to be happening in the future. Now, many people never think about the future. They just think about today, about right now. But the Proverbs tell us in one place that we should be like the little ants running, along, running around on the ground. They, they work hard during the summer to gather their food and store it for the winter because they know winter's coming. So they have planning going on. They have preparation going on. The future winter governs their days of summer. So the future coming of Jesus should have an effect on our daily lives. Peter tells us, first of all, to set our hope on Christ's future coming. What does he mean by hope? Well, in the New Testament, the word hope has a special meaning. It doesn't just mean wishful thinking. Like, uh, I hope it won't rain tomorrow when we have our picnic. But the word has a much deeper uh, meaning. It carries 
the idea of certainty, of, of assurance based on God's promises that something is going to happen according to God's word. We have a great hope that Christ will return. It's more than wishful thinking. He's going to come back. He's going to wipe out all evil in the world. And he's going to bring in his reign of everlasting righteousness. This is not just wishful thinking. We have confidence, we have hope that it's really going to happen because God's word, Jesus himself said he was going to come back and do all these great things. So we live in a confident hope of Christ's return. We have an anchor in the heavenlies that guides our daily lives. We're not just blown around by every circumstance that comes our way. We have an anchor in the heavenlies. It's the hope of Christ's return. Now, look at what Peter says about Christ's return. He says something marvelous is going to happen when Christ returns. He will be accompanied by grace. Set your hope fully on the grace that we will be brought to you. So grace is coming. Not only his physical presence will break open the skies and he will descend, but he's going to pour out even more grace upon his people than he's already done so. That is something to look forward to. What kind of grace might this be? Well, the main thing is going to be his physical presence. We're going to see the Lord Jesus with our own eyes. No doubt we're going to touch him. We're going to fall at his feet and worship him. The one who loved us and bore our sins on Calvary's cross will finally gather us together to him as a hen gathers her chicks and he will be our God before us and we will be his people. This is the great promise of the scripture that will finally be fulfilled. This is the end towards which all things are moving. That he will be our God, our personal God, and we will be his people and we'll be with him. Hallelujah. What a great future awaits us. If that were not enough, grace, another thing we know that's going to happen when Christ returns is that he's going to provide us with our resurrection bodies. We'll be changed. We'll be given an incorruptible body that will not die. That will be healthy. All the suffering, the heartache, the sin of this world will be gone forever and we will be with Jesus Christ and his people in the new heavens and the new earth. So grace will indeed be poured, out on, be poured on us, be brought to us, as it says, in new and fresh ways that we have not yet experienced. This grace is not something that we work up ourselves. It says specifically, it will be brought to us. It's a gift. We're not going to do anything but receive it. It's from God. It's His gracious hand. We can't do anything to earn it. We just receive it. That is the nature of grace. Is it not? It is a gift. It's not of works so that no man can boast. But God's great kindness and His loving graciousness is given to us as people. So what a, what a kind and compassionate God this is. He's blessed us in this life with salvation, his presence, his guidance. But in the future, when Christ returns, there'll be even more grace given to us. What a great and kind God he is. So 
Let's serve him and thank him all the days of our lives. Actually, this is really the theme of this portion of 1 Peter. We respond to what he's done with our own devotion and dedication because of all his grace and kindness to us. Now, notice here, he says in verse 13, preparing your minds for action. Christ is coming. Prepare your minds for action. The literal Greek, as it probably says in the footnote in your Bible, is girding up the loins of your mind. Now, what does that mean? Well, in the days of the uh, ancient Near East, uh, in which this letter was written, men wore robes. And when they had to do some kind of uh, strenuous physical activity, like working out in the fields or working on a building construction project, or maybe even going into battle in war, they would pick up the, the edges of their robe and they'd tie them around their waist so that their legs would be free to move. So you gird up your robe so that you're ready for action. The same idea we have in our culture. Sometimes we say, well, roll up your sleeves and get to work. We're not, we may be talking to somebody with short sleeves on, but it's a picture, right, of getting serious about getting down to work. Well, God has called us to do some serious work in this world. It's like that man that was doing a building project in the Gospels, and he had to stop and, and count the cost. The man who didn't count the cost, project failed, but the man who calculated carefully what he had to do, what he had to invest, was the one who was successful, so... We need to consider this calling that God has presented to us. It is a calling. A call came to us from outside. It came from eternity into time. The Holy Spirit brought the truth of the gospel to our hearts and minds, and he enabled us to respond. He's given us a great calling. We have to get ourselves mentally ready for this. We have to think about the will of God. Specifically, what is God's will for my life? How do we learn that? Well, we learn it from concrete evidence. That is the word of God. It might tell us, it might not tell us where to go shopping today, but it does tell us when we go shopping to treat people kindly and courteously and look for an opportunity to share the gospel, if the Lord would open that up. So, study the word to learn God's directions and will for our lives. The emphasis here is on the use of our minds. We have to engage our minds in the Christian race that we are running. God wants us to exercise our brains, our thinking, to grow in knowledge, to read, to meditate, to discover His will, to discover, to learn more about God's nature of His grace. We have to train our minds to think Christianly. Mm -hmm. Now the classic text on this is Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We have to have our minds renewed, reprogrammed. 
that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, Peter talks about uh, not only preparing our minds for action, but being sober-minded. In other words, we should be clear-headed. We should not be distracted by ungodly thinking. We should not be like people who have drunk too much alcohol, can't think straight, can't talk straight, but be like people who have guarded ourselves and stayed away from things that will inhibit clear thinking, that will inhibit active, diligent devotion to Christ, to His calling, His command over our lives. This passage of Scripture is talking about God's calling and His commands over our lives. So we should be sober-minded, not inebriated, not irrationally drunk with thoughts of ungodliness of the world, but with a committed determination to use our lives as an offering of worship to the Lord Jesus Christ and for His glory. This is a high and holy calling. It doesn't matter what our circumstance is in life. This is the mutual calling to the church. Well, Peter talks about this sober-mindedness later in his epistle, 1 Peter 4, 7. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Again, chapter 5, verse 8, Peter says, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devote. And then if we look at from the pen of the Apostle Paul, 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. So we need to be sober-minded. Several places the Scripture is telling us to be alert, to be sober-minded, sober-minded, to be ready for action, to be alert in our daily lives. Now, so this first section is talking about living out our lives in view of the fact that Jesus is returning. Second, second point here is this. It says here, verse 14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your, formal, your former ignorance. So the second major idea here is, is this. Let not the evil passions of your pre-conversion life control you any longer. Be as obedient children. Now, Mr. Alan Stibbs says this. The idea here of obedient children is people whose prevailing attitude of mind and spirit is obedience to the Lord who have given themselves up to habitual practice in following the Lord obeying him Paul, Apostle Paul calls it the obedience of faith faith results in obedience if it's true faith it results in obedience to the word of God 
Now, Professor Stibbs makes this observation about not being conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. God's calling in our lives involves two basic thrusts, two basic actions. Ceasing to think and do what we used to think and do, but beginning and continuing to think differently, act differently, behave differently. All this is inevitable because of the powerful working of the indwelling spirit in the life of each believer. It's just as impossible for a human life not to be radically changed by the entrance of the Holy Spirit as it is impossible for a glass of water not to turn red if a bottle of red food coloring were poured into it. It's going to turn red. It's inevitable. If the Holy Spirit is poured into our life, it's going to bring some big changes internally. So, the New Testament teaches us much about how to live and how to think. We repent and we deny, by the grace of God, old sinful habits, and we adopt new, healthy, godly habits. Now, he speaks about here about, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Ignorance results from not knowing the Word of God. We were consumed before Jesus came and saved us with our own pleasures, our own glory, our own agenda. No thought of God, what would be pleasing to Him, and what was in conformity with His Word. I know I was in that state of mind. But when the Holy Spirit comes and brings us into Christ's kingdom, big changes happen in our lives. Paul describes those people who are in the world who have not met the Lord Jesus. He says they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Their hard spiritual heart leads to spiritual ignorance. It used to be that we were just plain ignorant of God, His will, and His ways. Even the Apostle Paul describes himself this way. He says in 1 Timothy 1.13, Though I formerly, previously, was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent of the gospel, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. So this ignorance and unbelief kind of go together. Well, the Apostle Paul was just as guilty as any of the worst Gentile sinners and idol worshipers around him. He knew that. Christ has come from heaven to rescue his people. We read this scripture this morning in our scripture lesson. The grace of God has appeared. Oh, wonderful, happy day for the human race when the grace of God appeared in the life of Jesus Christ, bringing salvation for all people, training us to do what? To renounce ungodliness 
and worldly passions and to live what kind of lives? Self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. There's a radical difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. As we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You see, Jesus is serious about producing a changed people to serve him in holiness and righteousness. Peter, in his letter, adds to this line of thought. In chapter 4, verse 2, he says, So we live the rest of our time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. He says, y'all had enough of that. Let's move on to something a lot better. Again, Paul does not absent himself from those who are outside of Christ. He says, uh, Titus 3.3, 3, we ourselves, Paul's writing this, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But then something marvelous happened. Happened to Peter. Happened to Paul. It's happened to many of us. The Son of God was sent from heaven. Paul preached about this to the Greek philosophers on Mars Hill in Acts 17. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. A new day has dawned in human history. A whole new way of living and thinking and relating to others and God has come to us by His grace. We are recipients of something that is greater than ourselves. Greater than we ever could have imagined. The living God has interrupted our lives. He said, stop. Quit going that direction. I want you to go this direction. Oh, blessed interruption. He has brought us into a new realm of living that is totally life transforming. So what we see in this passage, first of all, we should live our life in view of the fact that Christ is returning by having renewed minds. And secondly, let not the evil passions of our pre-conversion life control us any longer. And thirdly here, like our God is holy, so let us be like him in all our conduct. What does this word holy mean? Well, it has a basic idea of separating something out for divine use or separating something or someone out to divine consecration. 
God's holiness is his separateness from his creation and his elevation high above it. We use the word we use the word transcendence sometimes to talk about talk about how high and exalted God is. He stands in contrast to the false gods. Psalm 99 verse 1 says, Yahweh reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. Yahweh is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. So holy encompasses these various aspects of the uniqueness and the transcendence of God. Holiness of God also uh, refers to his ethical and moral excellence. Uh, Habakkuk 1.3 says, You, speaking of Yahweh, who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. So holiness refers to the outshining of God. The sun's rays that come to us are like that. The holiness of God comes to us. Now each of the three persons of the Godhead are called holy. In John 17, 11, Jesus prays. He says, I'm no longer in the world, but they're in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Jesus calls the Father holy. In Acts 4, 3, the church is praying, praying to God, and they say, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs are wonders, and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They knew Jesus was holy, and they addressed him by the right title. And then the Spirit is everywhere called holy, the Holy Spirit. For example, 1 Peter 1.12, which we've looked at, uh, speaks about the gospel coming to these people, bringing the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So this is an essential and unique attribute of God, the one God in his three persons. Each of the three persons is equally holy. Now I want us to look at just a few Old Testament texts that I think will help us get a hold of this whole idea of holiness that belongs to God. Uh, now Peter says here, he writes in here, uh, as it is written, he says in verse 16, Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So he's referring to the Old Testament. He's quoting from the Old Testament. And whenever a New Testament writer such as Jesus says it is written, it means it's from the authoritative Old Testament scriptures. It is written by the inspired direction of God. So let's look at a few passages in the Old Testament that will help us understand a little more about God's holiness. A basic text here is Leviticus 19.2. Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I the Lord your God am holy. So here's the basic truth. God is a certain way. His people need to be that way also. God is holy. His people need to imitate him. That's the basic truth in all of this. Now, 
Joshua 24, 19, he says to the people, Joshua does, you are not able to serve the Lord for he's a holy God, he's a jealous God, he will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. So part of the holiness of God is the fact that he's jealous. He will have no rivals before him. He demands exclusive worship and service. 1 Samuel 2, 2, we read of Hannah's prayer, which was in some ways uh, almost repeated by Mary. Hannah prays, there's none holy like Yahweh. There's none besides you. There's no rock like our God. So she's pointing out there in her prayer the exclusiveness of Yahweh God. There's none that can measure up to Him. Now, one of the basic ideas of holiness is it's a separation from the world, from ungodliness, from sin, consecrated unto God for His use and His purposes. Leviticus 20.26, the Lord says, You shall be holy to me, for I... Yahweh am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. The nation was separated from the pagan nations by the law of God which they were to follow. The pagans didn't know about this. Now, another text that gives us some insight here is also from Leviticus 11.44. He talks about Consecrate yourselves, be holy, for I am holy. And he talks about not defiling yourselves with swarming things. Things that crawl on their belly. Some kind of unclean animals. I assume maybe he's talking about bats, for example. But you are not to eat those kind of animals. You're to be a separate people. Not to defile yourselves with things that God classifies as unclean. Uh, now Isaiah 5.16 Yahweh of hosts is exalted in judge, justice and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. So here's another aspect of the holiness of God. He is, his holiness means his righteousness. His exaltation and justice. All these concepts are bound together in the idea of a holy God. Isaiah 43.3 For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom. So the Holy One is the Savior of His people. He rescues them. He delivers them from oppression, from slavery. And then in Ezekiel 36.22 he says, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act before the sake of my holy name. So whether the Israelites followed him or not, he was going to act justly and righteously for the sake of his own holiness. Of course, we can read in Isaiah 6 or Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, about the worship in the heavenlies. The heavenly beings are shouting out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. How do they address God? They don't say righteous God, just God, loving God. No, they say holy God. This is a, a chief, uh, all-encompassing attribute. 
of God. Well, we read today further from Leviticus 19. Holiness involves, it must affect our behavior as followers of God. We're to be holy. What does that mean, to be holy? Well, in the Old Testament context, it says this, Leviticus 19, uh, 1, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his father and mother. That's what it means to live a holy life. If you're a child, to revere your father and mother. And you shall keep my Sabbaths. Keep the, day, uh, the year, weekly worship of God. And do not turn to idols. To live holy life means you don't worship idols. You don't worship anything besides God himself. Now Leviticus 20 he talks about these people who followed the pagan god Molech who offered their children in fire as sacrifices. God says he's opposed to that. He says if a person turns to mediums and necromancers, that is to the occult, he is participating in sin. Do not let anyone curse his father or mother. He shall surely be put to death. Whoever commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor shall surely be put to death. He says in Leviticus 20, Do not walk in the customs of the nations that I'm driving out before you. For they did all these detestable sacrifices, and I detested them. So we can see that the Old Testament saints were trained, were taught how to live a separated holy life by avoiding some of these practices and behaviors. We're to be what? Imitators of God. Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, 48, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, that's a high calling, is it not? To be perfect? But that's what Jesus said. This is serious business. He's given us a high and holy calling. We need his help to be faithful. In 1 Corinthians 6, he says, your, your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're not your own. You're bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. These bodies are not ours just to do with what we want, but they're to be instruments to glorify God. God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Hebrews 12.10 talks about our fathers who raised us, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, that is God, disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. When he disciplines us, we grow and we become more like our God. Very specific behaviors given to Christians. 1 Thessalonians 4 Paul says, abstain from sexual immorality. For God's not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And then in Galatians 5, Paul goes on here. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't mince any words. He's very specific. And you, like me, may have checked this list out. <laughs> To see if, it, if, if you're measuring up. 
The desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the spirit against the flesh. They're opposed to each other. The flesh keeps you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, that's hatred, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Paul goes down the list. He was well familiar with human sin. He was a holy man, but he was a big observer, no doubt, of the Gentiles and others around him. But he'd been a sinner like everybody else. He acknowledged that. He says, Paul says, I warned you as I warned you before that those, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. We have to repent and avoid those kinds of behaviors. It is a high and holy calling. No excuses are given. But the fruit of the Spirit is what? The very opposite of those kind of behaviors. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there's no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Well, Peter is giving us a heart-to-heart talk today about Christian behavior. What the Lord has called us to, not only called us, but commands us to follow So we need his help. We need his grace. We need one another to be able to fulfill the high calling of our Christian lives. So, what do we do? We live our lives in view of the fact that Christ is returning. We prepare our minds for action. We're sober-minded. And we let not the evil passions, the habits of our pre-conversion life control us anymore. And like our God is holy, we're to be like Him in all of our conduct. It doesn't say 50% of your conduct, but all your conduct. Let's pray. Lord, as we've heard your word today, we ask you to help us to do all these things that you're calling us and commanding us to do. Forgive us when we have failed you, when we have failed to follow these commandments. Strengthen us to know your word and to do your word. We ask this for your glory and for our own good and benefit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.